You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi there. I think this will be a little bit different episode. It's kind of a catch-up episode. There's so much that's been going on in current events that I want to comment on with whatever history I can bring to it. I'll record episodes at times and will sometimes intersect with exactly what's happening today and sometimes not. You know, we did one on student loans and then look what happened, right, with student loans. That was kind of anticipated. But other episodes, like say the elephant in the room where we talked about former presidents, wasn't as much news going on with that topic, former presidents involved in politics, as there is at the current moment. So want to kind of catch up and discuss some of what's going on. Uh, some of this is influenced by a visit I took recently to Washington, D.C. I really have to say there's something about being there in the symbols of the United States of America, the Capitol building, the White House, although I didn't see that on this particular visit, the judiciary, the older buildings, the white stone, and the green grass. And, you know, it's hot there, I'll admit, in August. And I'm reminded of that old Portuguese diplomat that in the early 1800s said of the United States Capitol, it's a city of magnificent distances. He was not making a compliment. He was talking about how far it was to walk to everything. And when it's a hot day like that, you really notice. But at the same time, it's majestic having that Capitol Dome behind you with the reflecting pools. And I think about where we are as a republic, and I'll talk a bit about these things today and also try to historicize them a bit. I want to start with a poem. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to start with a poem that I was introduced to recently called July in Washington by Robert Lowell. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but parts of it. And it's written in 1964, and he captures this imagery. The stiff spokes of this wheel touched the sore spots of the earth. On the Potomac, swan-white power launches keep breasting the sulfurous wave. The elect the elected, they come here bright as dimes and die disheveled and soft. We cannot name their names or number their dates. And then he says, we wish the river had this other shore, not the one we're on. And we wish that we could see this bright mountain chain that he compares to a girl's blue eyelid. But he says, only the slightest repugnance of our bodies that we can't control anymore hold us back. 
July in Washington, Robert Lowell. I suggest you read it. It's online. He writes it in 1964. And I think you see in this poem, it kind of makes Washington this powerful city that controls all the different, you know, it, it, as he says, it's a wheel that has spokes into all the parts of the earth. It's not always positive, hence all that sulfur he's talking about in the water. But yet when you see it, it's kind of this swampy land with a lot of vegetation. And he uses that in his poem. But he also talks about how this capital city sits in a swamp and it would be nice if there was evident, you know, some other shore, like an ocean or a mountain that the rest of America is. And, 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 and it doesn't represent well. Well, I've talked about in the past about how they almost moved the capital to St. Louis, but that's not really Lau's point either. You know, it's just that, um, this city and the power that it represents and the current American nation. And there's hints in this poem of corruption and not being as good as you could be. That line about elected people coming to the city, bright as dimes, like hard-nosed, moral people, people with goodwill who are also strong. And then they come up with crumpled up clothes and, you know, no good ideas and, and are corrupted by the system. He writes this in 1964. So all of this strikes me for a lot of reasons. One is, I don't know how many times I hear that we're in the worst time in America's history and no one's ever felt this way. No one's ever felt the chaos. No one's ever felt craziness, partisanship, depending on your point of view in one area or another, corruption, forces beyond our control that have taken our republic, you know, by the... This is written in 1964. And I'll talk a bit more about that time period later, but I think the thing you need to understand, I mean, the president of the United States had just been shot. On top of that, you had the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Cold War. It's an emergency time, nuclear missiles pointed at each other from two large nations. We're not communicating well with China nor Russia nor a host of other countries in their midst. And yet, you know... We're told, like, this is the worst, most scary time. And I just don't think that's the case. And I think this is at least one period that you can look at where Americans were freaked out. It's evident in Lowell's poem. It's also evident that there's the aspirational nature of America, like what we want it to be. And then there's what it is. Doing battle in his poem, in his image about July in Washington in this kind of hot, swampy, vegetative city. You know, he has another line of the poem about these statues look like uh, South American liberators, you know, with, with green grass growing on them. So there's always this sense that we have to keep the republic trim and good-looking and do things as citizens to make it better or else turns to sulfur. It all strikes me. It all strikes me very much. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about current politics than I usually do. Um, my question to myself is, can I act like a political drone here, fly above my own biases? I might have. 
you have, we all have, and just look at the situation from above. Probably I can't, and probably none of us can, but I think we all have to try harder. We should have our partisan, utopian, this is right, I'm grabbing the steering wheel type thoughts. But we also should have a more educational side of us, a more parisha, where we can speak freely and about things without like spear-tipping every communication we make to our partisan sense, attacking, 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 you know, and that's what a lot of social media do. I think the character limit of Twitter alone leads us towards that. People make a few mistakes in general in their communications, as I see it, the two forward partisan, everything in those terms. They all think the left, the world is like left, right, Republican, Democrat. If they're left, then the right is a scary troll. If they're right, then the left is a scary Leninist Trotsky dude. Well, people say in, in polls all the time that they're in the center of politics. When they envision their political opponents, they don't see much center. I think that's quite true. They're skeptical of divisions that exist in politics today. And put people into a few buckets and not enough. And not don't realize that while their own minds might be, you know, how they feel about things might be very individualistic and they feel just strongly about it, that they are different from others. But when it comes to looking at other American minds, they do not. There's so many political divisions that you could look at in America today. It's not just left and right. You have like kind of the real progressives. I want to do something. I want to change lots of things quickly. That type of left. You have a more establishment left that might be where you might put the president right now. A libertarian. A leave me alone. But also don't harm people type left. Take it easy on the rules. Take it easy on all the save us talk. The overused, say, never-Trumper Republican types. I'm right. I will vote left when needed for safety against that type person. The more I'm registered as Republican family, always voted Republican. I'm more right than left. Take it easy on all the save-us rhetoric. Take it easy on your utopian ideas. I might cringe at a few things I see written or said, um, I may or may not have voted for Trump in 2016 or in 2020. That type. You have people who are Trump absolutists. You have some libertarians. Let the free market decide. Um, and then that'll work out. Get off my backs. Sometimes if the free market is saying that Trump should be the leader, okay. You have all of these kind of opinions. You also have a real authoritarian group that would be very strict, um, more like everything should be families. There should be strong rules around law and order. Um, let the families take care of things in America would be better reduce the size of government drastically you have authoritarian left or like we need extreme regulation of these businesses and what they're doing extreme redistribution of income and when we had it 
in the 40s and 50s, America prospered. Highest corporate tax rate and the average middle class person prospered. These are all the, I'm just naming a bunch of different types of people who fit into various politics. And you win elections building coalitions of those people where you can. That's the reality of what goes on in politics. The fake of what goes on in politics is that there's two parties and they're competing with each other. Or there's left and there's right. And you may be creative and have a whole bunch of others. I think there could be like 26 different definitions of types of politics that people could fit into. And they each feel very strongly about it. I can't claim to be an expert at this. I can claim a little historical knowledge on different divisions in the past, like, for instance, when Lincoln was president. And then, again, you could say, oh, there are only, um, gosh, I mean, a very basic interpretation. It was Lincoln versus Jefferson Davis in the Civil War. And then you start broadening it, and you have um, Lincoln, you have unionist Democrats who are supporting the war but not supporting Lincoln or the way he's fighting it. You have moderate Republicans. You have radical Republicans, the Ben Wade and Zach Chandlers of the world who did not like Lincoln one bit or any of his approaches. You piece together what you can from these coalitions, and that's how Lincoln governed during that war. We didn't get to see what he'd do afterwards. But I think it would have involved piecing together coalitions of different people because the radical Republicans had, uh, you know, despite all the salutes for him, almost had enough with Lincoln. This doesn't change over time. It's a republic, the United States, and to the republic for which it stands. Public people, poly, and unlike the Athenians, we at least attempt here to have everyone to speak. See, the Athenians had had a democracy that involved maybe 10% of the people. Um, I, had, I had Dr. Paul Cartledge on a few years ago who was explaining how all that worked. It was a lot more democratic with the average person in the juries. But when it came to the running of, the, of Athens, it was a small group of people. We've never wanted that. We've, over time, wanted to enlarge that. And there's been definite battles and still are over how people vote and who gets to vote. But generally, the direction has been you've gone from a system where, say, property owners could vote to something where everyone has a voice. And we want to enlarge that voice vote both in the voting and in the speaking but that's it. With a republic, you should be tolerant as a good citizen of a myriad of voices and want to hear them. You know, some of the left-right axis, that's all we ever hear, or some of the terms, um, some of the ways that you, you know, label people. It, it's hard sometimes because there are language limits. You know, how do you describe things? You end up using, I use the terms left and right all the time for lack of something else. I mean, language has its limits. But we do have to think out of the box on that. So we've had some recent events, haven't we? Warrant and search on President Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago in Florida. The January 6th committee. The decision of Wyoming voters to send Congresswoman Liz Cheney home because of her work on that committee and other statements, Biden's student loan programs, Biden and the Democrats running in midterms, um, the Inflation Reduction Act, 
the topic of inflation, maybe a little deinflation, maybe fears of reinflation, definite fears of upcoming recession, perhaps. And the general, this is a super hypercharged partisan time and it will never get any better tone. The January 6th committee, uh, I believe, was necessary. I already talked about this on my congressional committee cast. That doesn't mean they got everything right. And if uh, I, let's say the situation was this, if I witnessed a group of protesters who were seeking national health care, the enhancement of national health care, lower drug prices for Americans, like things that I would be very uh, positive about. And if they came in bulletproof armor, bear spray, with advanced units ahead, breaking down barriers, attacking Capitol Police, getting into the Capitol, getting into Congresswomen and Congressmen's offices, getting into the Speaker's office, calling out the names of specific congressmen. If they were calling out, say, Josh Hawley to to be able to detain him until they could give him a talk about national health insurance, I would be just as outraged as the events that happened. And more importantly than my little outrage, uh, I would say this, it would deserve an investigation by the congressional body. You know, I mean, people do go in and out of the Congress all the time, and there are tours. It used to be quite an open door, as I recall, in the early to mid-90s. But this isn't what we're talking about here, are we? I would say that that would require an investigation. So what happened with the January 6th committee needed be say was correct and right. Um, And I'd also say, and you hear some talk about this, that there could be an investigation of the investigation should control of Congress take place. And that I think would be not only um, ridiculous, but an abuse of Congress, really, abuse of Congress's authority. It has the right as a constituted Congress to investigate things. And so so I believe all of that. Um, that being said, I found the J6 committee a little bit conclusion forward, if you ask me. I mean, I talked about that a lot in a historical context about how congressional committees have been. And the Kefauver Committee, for instance, yes, it brought to the nation's attention crime. Yes, it brought, say, um, an admission finally from the FBI that there was organized crime, which they were reluctant to do. They'd rather focus on like, you know, uh, baby face, whoever, you know, big bank uh, robbers and stuff and say we nabbed the guy and not say that there was this collective organized underworld. Um, so, but Keith Harvard does that, but also at the expense of some I mean, they're just kind of shouting accusations at people who probably did some bad things, but they don't really have the goods. And then, of course, the real wrong is when you get into uh, McCarthy's committee and some of the things he's doing. A few times, a broken clock strikes twice, is, is right twice a day. Sometimes he hits a few things, but in general, he's throwing stuff against the wall and ruining careers. And this is what we don't want. You have bad examples of... Um, committees. And you have over the history, a lot of times kind of fringe elements like TV moments are the key elements of the, the committee. So I found it a little bit um, as, and again, I go back to, I said it was warranted. They needed to do this work. They, they uncovered some things that I think were important. The most important was the testimony of actually people 
who are on the ground. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I do criticize things like showing Senator Hawley running in the hallway. Like, it's a congressional committee should not be an opportunity for things like that. It's a, I get it. Um, it's hypocritical for someone to say, I don't need security, and then they're running. But I, I, is that the committee's job to do, or is that something that you can choose to um, release along with a lot of other things and let partisans on social media do that? Um, I felt that sometimes it was a congressman or woman stating claims um, instead of um, just letting the, the witness and the testimony uh, make those claims. Sometimes they had to do it because it's a lot of information and they were summarizing. But uh, it was a television event and that, that, you know, I mean, those are aspects where you can be critical of it while supporting the whole investigation. I think it was effective politically. I do believe that this will be one of several trends that just might make midterms a little different this year. And I'll get into that. The GOP, by deciding to protest this committee and not have members on it, um, gave up their opportunity to do what was done during the Watergate House committees, what was done during all of the Clinton House committees, where there were members of the Republican or Democratic Party in opposition, respectively, who could criticize the investigation right there in the committee, who could raise questions, and you didn't have that. I mean, perhaps it's a clever politics, right? Because the argument could be that by not being on that committee, you saved yourself the argument that that committee is a bunch of baloney. I I see that possible play. If that was the strategy, I don't think it worked. I think the J6 committee was a lot more effective than that. Uh, here's my historical hat back on. If, if I did make it clear in the committee cast... A committee now could be a committee tomorrow. They're made up of politicians and there will be the same fights in reverse if the GOP takes over the House. Or, and I have to add, because I think this is increasingly a possibility, if the GOP is able to even have a successful speaker's election or able to really run that House consistently over time. We'll see what happens there. Liz Cheney lost her election in Wyoming. This is absolutely no surprise. Should not have been a surprise to her. A surprise would have been if she only, say, lost by five or ten points in a Republican primary in Wyoming, having criticized Trump, who did extremely well in Wyoming. Um, primaries are not unlike congressional committees in this way. They create the veneer of elections, but it's important for us as political observers, if we're going to be serious about it, to see what they are. They're votes among people who are committed to one party or the other. They're toe the line. I mean, that's been their function since the beginning, really um, since their start in the, really starting in the 1890s in some, in some ways to, for that exact purpose, to kind of enforce party discipline and make sure that a member doesn't get too far out of line voting against where the party's most rabid voters say are. And you've seen that scientifically perfected in 2022. I think primaries are really part of the reason uh, and the, the whole voting winner-takes-all voting system combined with primaries are part of the reason for our politics today. There's some talk about Cheney running for president. Well, who knows, right? I don't know. 
anyone could do it. Uh, it's easier now than it ever was, has been with the internet and things like that. You don't have to hope for the Washington Post to talk about you a lot, although they are talking about Liz Cheney. Um, and you hear some punditry that perhaps if she runs, so that would take away votes from Trump and then Biden, Harris, or whoever is Democratic nominee at that point wins the election. Nothing could be further from the truth or the historical record. A third party will almost always hurt the party who is the incumbent party in the White House. And I'll add here, a serious third party. Almost always. You have 1992, 1968, 1912, 2016, just as some examples where there was a strong third party. Um, there's still a refusal to acknowledge the role of third parties in 2016. It's so simple and so clear to me. Gary Johnson getting millions of votes. Jill Stein getting millions of votes. 500,000 write-in votes for President of the United States. The most ever in 2016. The more third-party candidates you have that are serious, that's indicative that people obviously didn't like the two-party candidates. That's first of all. But also that there's something wrong with the existing administration. There's enough to criticize that there could be two voices attacking. And then you have a whole campaign with two serious or more voices attacking. The only person that I can see in history that benefits from that third party running is Harry Truman in 1948. Still, you know, a very nerve wracking close election there. And I think it was a little different with the politics of the time because he had actually four parties. Wallace and the Progressives, Dewey and the Republicans, Strom Thurmond and the Dixiecrats, and Truman running. The Dixiecrats take southern states off the table that I believe that hurts Truman because he might have won them. Dewey probably wasn't going to get them. They didn't like Dewey any more than they liked Truman, all right, on the, on the issue of civil rights. And then you have um, Wallace, the Progressive, this episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Because he performed well 
in states where Dewey was also performing well, like New York is a big one, one of Wallace's best states. This is Henry Wallace we're talking about, not George. That comes later. Um, Wallace also, uh, you know, so he helps Truman in that way. He also makes Truman appear more moderate than Truman actually was because he's got this guy that's like pinko left, according to the press, on his left. And it makes Truman look more in the middle. And that helped him with some voters. Um, usually that is not the case. Those are really hard dynamics to line up again. I think that anyone in the White House, you got a third party candidate, what they will do is they will drain alternative. Um, they will drain Republicans. Someone like a Liz Cheney would drain Republicans who would be voting for Biden or Harrison and uh, giving them another choice. Now, it's going to depend with any third party on how serious they are. What, you know, what chance do they have? You saw in the 1980 election, you saw in the 1996 election, that where the challenger, say Perot or Anderson, doesn't seem to have a credible chance to even get to, say, the House of Representatives in a deadlock or something, voters start bailing on them towards the end. So polls are going to be important here. Anderson had something like 25% of the people would have voted for him, but 6% do, you know, because they don't want to waste their vote. And that's going to happen, too, as you get to an election. That usually, that that process favors incumbents. But this whole idea that, uh, oh, Cheney could run as a third party, that'll sink Trump. I don't understand uh, that commentary. They'd have to explain it to me. Student loans, so the announcement that uh, Joe Biden uh, had his plan with the $10,000 in forgiveness in student loans set up the same debate that we talked about in our episode. Uh, we were timely with this episode. Fortunately, whether you're giving away something where other people worked hard for it or whether we're all, as, as I might see it, have a stated view of supporting education generally. It's one of the highest things in the polls. And doing it this way, I don't know if it's because it feels too retro, like the people already spent the money instead of giving people a scholarship now, all of a sudden we don't want to do it. Um, I think in the way that Joe Biden did it, he had floated the idea of 10K. So the fact that he just announces 10K really questioned the, the politics there, but that's not up to me. I think, you know, you're supposed to, like, under-promise, over-deliver or something like that, right? Uh, I would have thought if you floated something, it would be bigger to make a bigger announcement before midterms. But I also see in this thinking, so the average student loan debt is about 25 k and there's lots of people with more. 10 k that might help a few people who are close, but what you're talking about is just some palliative amount. Most people are still going to have loans. So all this talk, they're going to go run up and take extra classes now because they got 10K paid. I don't, I don't see it. Uh, it's an exact kind of moderate kind of policy that a lot of people on the left of things are going to call milk toast uh, because what are you really doing, right? There are There is more to the legislation. You really have to look at the repayment improvements, which are going to be income adjusted, that helps people a lot. That's probably more important than the 10K, which is getting all the press and all the debates. Midterms are turnout battles. So doing something like this, you see President Biden timing things towards 
the midterm in a way that I haven't seen as much in other areas. Um, let's see. Now that I haven't seen in other presidencies. Uh, I don't think student loans drives huge turnout. It's probably just one of many factors. Roe v. Wade is a bigger one. And here I have, I really thought about this. And I think the historical example with Roe v. Wade, I see a connection to prohibition, which was this great moral crusade that in the end was really supported by a small, very, very active, very good at fundraising, very good at political persuasion group of people, but not broadly by Americans. And it got worse each year after it was enacted, after they won, you know, politically, many people were sorry that they won and went with a kind of lax enforcement as a way around the issue. Because it was a difficult issue. To, if you spoke out against prohibition, you were supporting drunks. You were, you were showing yourself of low moral character, which is hard for any politician of any party. And so you had this lag throughout the 20s where people are experiencing increases in crime, um, pissed off constituents, to be frank, about not being able to do something they wanted to do, uh, and that they felt they were adults and could manage themselves, and also low sales tax revenues, where this is a key instrument for a lot of cities. And by the time you get to the Depression, that, that last argument is much bigger than anything and is what really kills um, prohibition. So I see this in a, um, I see this, you know, kind of like an equatable issue. One of the things about prohibition is that there were many states where Democrats and Republicans together were getting annoyed by this issue because it cut across lines. You had wet Republicans, wet Democrats, you had dry Democrats and dry Republicans, and these prohibitionists could kind of operate within their parties. And so political bosses, maybe not everyone's favorite person to listen to their grumblings about, didn't always like the uh, what was going on. And I, I would predict the same thing with Roe v. Wade, even though it's mostly a Democrat versus Republican issue, you're starting to see some of that break now that you have actual prohibition. And I think you, you saw the vote in Kansas. That's not a very blue state. They, have a, they can win a statewide election sometimes. They have a Democratic governor. But uh, you saw what happened in popular reaction. We just don't have enough evidence about midterms. I'm going to do a couple casts about midterms. I'm going to rerun one from 2018. I'm also going to do one on Nixon's so-called lonely midterm of 1970, his only midterm, and try to get at it. But the reality is there's too low a sample size for me to tell you what's going to happen with the midterms. And can a, a president actually not lose seats during a midterm? It's just too low of a sample size. And the examples are that are like where a president didn't lose any kind of significant amount or gain. You know, they're small. It's hard to put them into boxes. But you do have 1962, and you do have 2002, and 1998, and 1934, where a couple of things happened that are occurring today, and a couple of things aren't occurring today. Okay? The key thing is there was a big, broad political movement um, in the case of 1962 and Kennedy, it was because it was right after the relief that occurred after the Cuban Missile Crisis and a belief in Kennedy's leadership after that. 
in 2002, 1934, and, and uh, 1998, it was a big political movement that countered what usually is like disgruntled base of a president's party. Um, with 1998, it was the impeachment and people felt wrong on that and Democrats came out and voted. In 2002, it was after 9-11 and the issue of whether to go to war or not in Iraq and the Patriot Act and much hay being made of Democrats being, say, unpatriotic because they weren't convincingly supporting this Patriot Act. 1934, New Deal, Depression, Roosevelt's popular programs. But in those three elections, uh, you had high popularity at the time with the presidential incumbent. And you're just not seeing that, uh, Biden. I mean, it, it ticked up a little in August. He's at 44, according to Gallup, where his lowest ever was 38. His highest ever was 57. Uh, 44% is not overwhelming and does not, would seem, a reversal of a midterm trend make. So we're left with this kind of like, we don't know what's going to happen, but um, you see things going on, though, with this Roe v. v. Wade issue where after the victory, the victors may have some buyer's remorse or parts of them. Uh, This is exactly what happened to the Republican Party in the 20s. So you have numerous kind of breakaways or silent breakaways. Calvin Coolidge was never a big supporter of... um, prohibition just on paper, not on enforcing it. He almost gets a primary challenge in 1924 because of this. When Big Bill Thompson becomes mayor of Chicago, he doesn't say, you know, I'm against prohibition. They're all supporters of prohibition on paper in the 1920s if they're Republicans. What he does say is, we're not going to look over under every citizen's bed in Chicago. You know, as it turned out, you know, If the liquor establishments and distributors paid him well enough, uh, he was fine looking the other way. That was Bill Thompson. And that that was very common in in 1920s, how this uh, overwhelming moral issue was handled when the restriction came before most people agreed with it. Well, Bruce, it's only talking about, I I I do understand it's a little different because there's a state um, by state restrictions, but many states have legislatures that are gerrymandered and don't reflect the ultimate popular vote in that state, and they're passing laws such as that. The other thing I'd say is that it is true that this is a more state-by-state at the current time. It's still an issue that's important at the federal level because there hasn't been statutory rights established at the federal level. So it's still a federal battle. This is not just an issue of the states, regardless of what the SCOTUS said. And then thirdly, I'd say um, we're more aware of other states now than we are. We're more aware of the the, the national picture the average citizen is because of the, the media and the internet that we have. So uh, even a restriction on our on people in one state, you know, can can be a big issue for others. Well, we'll see what happens. Um, FBI uh, served a warrant on Trump's Mar-a-Lago for classified documents. You know, uh, where do I come down on it? It's right to take it seriously. It's right to look at it. It's right to be even a wee bit concerned that you have uh, 
presidential candidate. I think, you know, and before I get like slammed by folks that don't like Trump, I just want to say that remember, whether it's those congressional committees or you're talking about something like the FBI or the Department of Justice, you don't have to look back too far to see that it could be under someone else's control at another point. And so what you want to have are these institutional limits. So it really comes down to the process that we're going through now, a public discussion and release of some documents. I do think I would go as far as to say there is a higher need than in other criminal cases, say, and other investigations to publicly discuss what's going on when it involves a, a live presidential candidate who has stated that they are one. You know, um, this was a big problem in 2016 with what uh, Comey did with um, Hillary Clinton. Because although he, he kind of botched it in the, the statements that he made and, and was clumsy about the whole thing, I mean, there was all of a sudden a reopening of the investigation a few weeks before the, the election. And uh, that just, there was an, a lack of awareness in the news story that that creates and the effect on politics. In this regard, I can't help but raise the uh, Trump-DeSantis dynamic because you have a situation where Ron DeSantis like, says, hey, it's not a raid that occurred. It's, it's somewhat defending the, the warrant search without really doing it. You're going to see this thing go on now for a little bit until this is hashed out. I mean, this is a political bodysuit of sorts. They're both residing in Florida. That's going to make that Florida primary critical. And someone like a DeSantis would need that to launch his campaign and uh, is going to have trouble winning there with Trump still in the race. But it's really not about any one primary. He can't go on and launch until he's aware of where Trump is in this race. And this is what I talked about in the Elephant is in the Room podcast, is that a former president creates a big black hole in the politics of a party until they make it clear whether they're running or not. And once they say they're running, um, then you have a situation where you can start to attack them like any other candidate if you're so inclined. But you also have a situation where a lot of people are going to be getting out of any active challenge because A, they don't want to take on a former incumbent and B, they don't want they might want to be a vice presidential candidate at this point you know take your uh take your four or eight years close to the president instead of uh instead of running against him and possibly getting nothing want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money well i've got the podcast for you i'm sean piles and i host nerd wallets smart money podcast on our show we help listeners like you make the most of your finances I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. So this DeSantis thing, you see, I thought this would happen, that there might be a candidate that was not Trump, but not necessarily disagreeable to all his supporters either that would emerge. Like, you know, somebody like a Romney or a Cheney running in a Republican primary, I mean, we know where that's going to go. They're going to get 10, 15% and out. I mean, maybe they'll get a little more with some of the news that's come out and things like that, Some of depending on what Trump does or doesn't do. You know, they might get a little more than that. But in a Republican Party primary, you know, someone of that ilk is probably done. So DeSantis is different. Uh, I do think that some of his name recognition comes from, I mean, you know, the news channels, you know, Fox does have candidates that they favor at times. They completely did this with Chris Christie in 2012, where it's like, we're going to offer you good coverage kind of thing. We're going to have you on a lot. You know, you have to you have to speak well and you have to do it yourself, but we're going to have you on a lot, which in and of itself is a is a good thing for a candidate. Um, they seem to be doing this with DeSantis. So you have that. You also have kind of his, uh, on this side of politics, the heroism over COVID restrictions and not doing them in a, in a sense and standing up to things like that in that world uh, is a positive. But I think some of the expiration date on that, I mean, we're getting, you know, it's not, not COVID's not gone, but we're getting far away from where any government's going to look at those restrictions. And it was in the view of many people, an emergency restriction for an emergency time. You have things like vaccines and you have some immunization and you have some um, better practices and the disease is taking different forms. It, absent that, he's lost a major issue that was his campaign issue. So, however, he remains governor. Governors are very strong in presidential elections in American history. We like to elect governors. They can show that they're an executive. They can make news by getting their legislature to pass things. They have to be in control of their legislature or else it doesn't work. DeSantis is. So you, so you have some... Uh, powerful things there. I just think, unfortunately, that Trump DeSantis thing is going to have to be worked out or you're going to end up with a um, 
pretty bloody primary that won't be advantageous to either of them. Um, I don't comment a lot. I'm, I'm certainly not the RNC political director. Pretty far from that. Straight up politics, straight up votes. No, not talking about any consequences or anything like that. If I were in their shoes, I'd run Trump. Much better name. I think he pulls turnout that while DeSantis may not show up high on a poll or two, or I think you get unpredictable turnout from um, Trump when he runs in the places where you need it. So, you know, seems stronger candidate, but then you're going to have to deal with consequences that come with that. One of which is if you want to have any kind of Republican party and have values or platforms, if that's what you want, you're not going to get it unless he agrees with it. You're going to basically get a uh, Trump Republican party. He's been influential in primaries, so he's already seeming to indicate this is the direction he wants to go. Um, there's a couple of things I see out here. So I, I have um, one, when I look at um, Biden and Trump, there are two things that are under the radar that uh, I believe are bad points for both of them. So to be somewhat balanced, I'll share one bad one for Biden, one bad one for Trump that I don't think most political observers are talking about. So for Biden, I think, you know, he thinks he can turn it around kind of in the last few months of a midterm. And you have seen gas prices come down. You have seen some, say, de-inflation, I'm going to call it, because it's not deflation. That's something else. It's actually not good either, by the way. It's even a lot worse than inflation um, when prices start dropping like crazy. But he's kind of um, forgetting that voters have impressions that may not change before October. 1992 is a great example of this. That when you... Um, the economy is actually getting better by any measure in the late 1992, right as voters were going to the polls. You started to see GDP growth creeping up where it had been down. And you were coming out of that 1990 crisis. Um, it didn't matter. Voters still had stories of their friends being laid off, of them being laid off in some cases, and just having a hard time finding work and the economy generally being bad. It didn't feel good. That doesn't go away in a few months. And that's something that I think um, they should be aware of. Here's the other thing. Let's say gas prices go down to uh, two bucks a gallon or something. You know, I mean, that might help, but it's not going to be that much. And voters over history have not rewarded presidents for good gas prices either. It's only when prices are high that they complain. They don't give you points when you get prices down. So I think there's an issue for him. For Trump, I think something that's under the radar and, you know, that I've noticed is um, he's he's a person that, you know, his pitch was business leader. Um, I haven't seen the management experience in that too many former employees, more than any president that I've ever seen, have come out and are speaking out against him. It's And, and so it's not just people who are critical. It's anyone who's worked in, not everyone, 
there are a group of loyalists and we, and we get that, but there are a great number of people who have worked in that White House who, after their terms ended, you know, I'm thinking of Mike Esper, the defense secretary, just one of the most recent ones. I'm thinking of Bill Barr, who was a real Trump partisan, really um, giving him a lot of uh, legal credibility during his time there and now saying terrible things. John Bolton. These are just a few. And how can you not judge a person's leadership by that? I think it's completely fair to do so. What's the argument on the other side? They're going to say it's kind of like deep state, these people, because you can't write a book and be pro-Trump. If you write a book anti-Trump, you make a lot of money. Um, You get on the talk shows, things like that. I guess that's the argument against it. I just think it's more than any other president that I've seen. You had a couple with Bush. Bush's press secretary came out against him. And, and had a, a kind of a nasty book. You had his uh, first Treasury Secretary, Paul O'Neill, come out in a big way against George W. Bush, not just about policy, but also about his intelligence and things like that, and how much Cheney was running the show and things like that. But um, I, have, I just haven't seen the level of it since then. As I said, I was in Washington, D.C., right behind that Capitol Dome, maybe a little philosophical, you know, thinking about our republic and just keeping in mind that, that, that a republic works when everyone speaks, when we hear voices, when we consider other voices. It doesn't work as well when there's um, a shutdown of voices, and that includes not just institutionally, like the Twitter or whatever, but it also in ourselves, if we're not listening, that there could be another point of view. When we just go out there with spear tips, as I see a lot of rhetoric and a lot of social media, it's just attack first. Um, We're not learning. You know, Lyndon Johnson once said, I never learned anything by talking. Of course, he talked a lot, but, you know, still, his his, uh, aphorism is true there. Um, I'm reading a lot of um, Richard Rorty recently, achieving our country. I'm always influenced by that point of view. Not that, not that he's right on everything, but it's just a kind of viewpoint that you, you know you do actually have to like America to be part of a country. We have to want. We have to be aspirational. We have to want this to to work. You must be there instead of the other way, just being always cynical, sarcastic, ironic. Oh, there's powerful forces that we'll never beat, and that's it. You know, I mean, that's not as he says achieving our country. On the other hand, in contrast to that, I was reading recently some of uh, Michel Foucault, a uh, French philosopher who's Rudy's not a huge fan of, but who had a quote that was something of the effect like, we know what actions we want to take, and we know what the results will be generally from them. We think we know what's going to happen when we take a certain action. But we can never be aware as humans. We don't have the vision to be aware of all the consequences of it. So, you know, you go and drink a bottled water, and what happens to the bottle? I mean, that's a really simplified example of probably recycling better in that industry than anywhere. But that's kind of what for co-sync. So you have those two, the contrast and the, the tense, the tension between those two viewpoints of, first of all, we have to be better because it's the only way to be. And secondly, to really simplify it, there's too many forces that are too big that you can't possibly control. So why bother? Just point out 
find what's wrong, identification of what's wrong, and and at some hope for justice there that way is, is the only thing you can do. And that's constantly, the, the, that's what's going on in our politics, that tension between these two things expressed by these two very different people without most people knowing that or having read either one of them. And uh, I, can't, I can, cannot get away from that. I do think when I look at the Capitol Dome and the buildings and I, you know, reference that Robert Lowell poem about how the vegetation kind of growing over the city and it can be corrupt and it can be these place with these old statues and sulfur water um, with confused wildlife and yet being so detrimental to the rest of the world, like kind of this like dystopian Cold War vision of Washington, D.C. and what America is and has done to the world. But I also think as a democracy, you know, there's reason to be optimistic. Look at all the people who have come and gone. I'll just read a few names like George W. Bush, Cheney, Kerry, Quayle, John John Boehner, uh, Gingrich, um, Bill Clinton. These are big names who once influenced a lot and in our lifetimes and in a lot of countries these guys would have incredible power still and they do not all those names i mentioned they're not in control of anything other than their speaking schedule say you know like i said in a lot of countries you might be 10 years is nothing for some countries for a recent podcast coming up on 1970, and I hadn't realized this, I, I found that uh, Muammar Gaddafi, he had taken over Libya in 1970. What a long reign he had. We're better. We don't have what uh, I joked with uh, Professor Paul Cartledge, who talked about Athens, that we might like. We don't have what Athens had, which is exile. If the people vote, you just simply take uh, troublesome politicians and move them away. But we have a form of it. We move on and we move to new things. But the argument against all that might be, well, that's great, Bruce, but I'm scared by these new things. I'm scared by them. And I can only historicize that in this way, that that was often the case. And I'm going to read a bit from um, a paperback I'd just gotten into, which is Norman Mailer's presidential papers it's written right before the kennedy assassination so it's it's a group of letters that he wrote to president kennedy but really they're just his articles he didn't actually send anything to kennedy or he didn't get him he wasn't in the administration like that but um it gives you a sense of that time and i'm talking about the 62 63 and how american feelings were and i find it a very anxious very partisan very hyper kind of time and if the argument is that um because of all the information being thrown at us like everything's fast moving now even that i'm afraid to say is not new my friends um that is something wow in 1980 i was doing research for the reagan podcast and there was all of this 1981 and so all of this talk about now things are too fast because of all the computers and all the stuff being thrown at us and you read that too in what norman mailer writes and so i'll read a bit of it 
Since the First World War, Americans have been leading a double life and our history has moved on two rivers, one visible, the other underground. There's been the history of politics which is concrete, factual, practical, and unbelievably dull, if not for the consequences of the actions of some of these men. And there is the subterranean river of untapped, ferocious, lonely, and romantic desires, that concentration of ecstasy and violence which is the dream life of the nation. The 20th century may yet be seen as that era where civilized man and underprivileged man were melted together into mass man. The iron and steel of the 19th century giving way to the electronic circuits which communicated their messages into men. It could be argued that the impetus to America's Cold War with communism has come from a collective psychosis, from a monster which has borne almost no relation to the objective Cold War going on in these years, particular real Cold War, which has been concrete, limited, ugly, derailed, and shrewd in its encounters. The Russians had showed a tough, tenacious, sly, somewhat dishonorable, and never-tiring regard for local victory, in which each of their episodes with us... In each of their episodes with us, we have dealt with this international opposition in terms which were schizophrenic. Here's a poem he writes to President Kennedy. You realize, of course, Mr. President, that your shelter program for every homeowner is sexing up the countryside and killing us in the big city bar. If this is good for the vitality of the nation, then, Mr. President, you are a genius, and the corporate executives living in the suburbs with their $5,000 shelters ought to salute you. I do. Atom bombs are not so bad, says small time in the town mind. They disinfect the big city and jazz us the toes out here in God's country. While big city flesh, all that blonde hair and black hair, straight and long, short and highly curled, floating in through the trees, a dew of homogenized bone and blood mist. We lie about the communist. They lie as well. We deaden the life of millions by hypocrisy and go on to claim we are the hope of civilization. They liquidate the life of millions and argue they are the imagination of the future. Of course, it may not be agreeable to listen to this now. America has been passing through a period of enormous expansion since the war. The double four years of Dwight Eisenhower could not retard the expansion. It can only denude it of color, character, and the development of novelty. The small-town mind is rooted. It is rooted in the small town. And when it attempts to direct history, the results are disastrously colorless. Because the instrument of world power, which is used by the small-town mind, is the committee. And committees do not create, they merely proliferate. America's need in those years was to take an existential turn, to walk into the nightmare, to face into that terrible logic of history, which demanded that the country and its people must become more extraordinary and more adventurous, or else perish, since the only alternative was to offer false security in the power and the panacea of organized religion, family, and the FBI. Norman Mailer a plague is coming named Virus YSX, still unsolved, promises to be proof against antibiotics, psychoanalysis, research products, vitamins, awards, crash programs, crash diets, symposiums, foundations, rest, rehabilitation, tranquilizers, aspirin, surgery, brainwashing, lobotomies, rises in status, box office bofo, perversions, and even a good piece of when that unhappy day comes to America, let the Russians take over. The best defense is infection. Norman Mailer
I want to take a couple questions. Um, so uh, Al Mendelson had mentioned to me, um, did anyone ever figure out what the tombstone scandal was? So in the episode about Tilden and the Tilden Hayes election and uh, how Tilden used a number of the scandals during the Grant administration, uh, I never got the full story on that. Um, and Al Mendelson Ask that. Thanks, Al. Um, I never got the full story on that, but I did see a slight um, newspaper article on it. So the Tombstone contract scandal was a scandal over the contracts for the marble for soldiers' graves, and that essentially, ostensibly through a because of a bribe, a contractor was paid way too much. Um, a contract was given to a Mr. Bridges of Keokuk, Iowa, for... 900000 almost a million dollars for American marble of very inferior quality and without any advantage to the government. Bridges' bid was put in after the hour fixed for opening the bids after two of his own had been opened. This is a another contractor who didn't get the bid said that uh, he was also favored to the extent of 75000 after the assignment of the bid. And this was all examined by the Committee of Washington, uh, the Committee on Military Affairs of the Congress, hearing from Maurice Walsh of New York, who said his bid for first-class marble was lower and he didn't get the bid. So that is the tombstone contract, and it was a, a scandal you just don't hear a lot about. Look, you don't hear a lot about the anti-Grant scandals. I think the modern history is kind of washing that away because correctly, Grant, they're, they're celebrating that he did a lot of good things, but they're not looking at some of the scandals of his administration, which people at that time definitely would have, and that's be they from the North or the South, the Democrat or Republican. It was a big issue at the time. We'll talk more about it. I plan to do more on Grant. I also want to note that on the um, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics discussion group on Facebook, uh, we got a great discussion there. Eric Bacchus has a lot of good stats and figures and makes some convincing arguments about the cost of college. And uh, rather than get into it on on air, um, I'll just refer you to that excellent um, Facebook site, and we're going to do some thread rescue to be sure it's up. So go to the Facebook site, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics discussion group. We've got uh, 1.6, we've got uh, uh, 1,600 members there, um, probably a hundred, couple hundred or so that are active. And, um, you know, but you can discuss things about the podcast or ask a question or suggest things on Facebook. So find us there. And I'm going to rescue that thread so it's at the top because you really got to see some of his extensive research on college pricing. But here's what we agree on. You can't just look at the loan issue without looking at what happened to drive the cost of college up from when it was kind of a minor thing when Claiborne Pell started those grants to now. Here's uh, David Sedley writes me, Bruce, I've listened to your podcast, which was featured on the Everything Everywhere podcast feed. Excellent information. Great how you put things into context. He was reading, uh, he was listening to Visions of a Fever, the 1941 podcast. 
However, I feel you left out an important detail when you spoke about Gerald Nye. We spoke about Nye and his committee looking into the origins of the war, World War One. He thought that the bankers and then Hollywood were responsible for dragging the U.S. into the war. But equally importantly, then as now, both banking and Hollywood were euphemisms for Jewish people. He was an anti-Semite, and then as now, isolationism often goes hand-in-hand with anti-Semitism. Thanks, David. Uh, Thanks, David. I guess I suspect there's some reading between the lines that folks have to do. I did want to point out that he shifted in 41 to Hollywood after having made most of his bread and butter on attacking bankers for a decade and really world bankers, which in the 30s, yes, absolutely. When you talk about world bankers, um, you're not talking about the guy in Main Street anymore and you're 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 using a euphemism that could be anti-Semitic. Um, appreciate the listen. And I'm glad that Gary's Everything Everywhere podcast brought you to us. Um, hope that you've stayed. Let's see. Uh, Andrew L. contacted me. Hello, longtime listener, first time writer. I was having a conversation with a friend about our representative in the House, and we both dislike him, and we asked about his 2022 opponent. My friend had met the opponent and had many nice things to say. Very personal, very fun to talk to if you get a few drinks in him. Very civically minded and sharp. And yet he continued, if elected, the civic minded opponent would be a reliable backbencher for all the policies I hate. So my friend intended to vote for the incumbent that he disliked, but was of his party. This pseudo-parliamentary voting strategy, voting entirely based on party and who will be speaker, majority leader, seems to me like it is historically unusual. My impression is that split-ticket voting was common and expected for most of the nation's history, but is becoming less so possibly due to power being particularly centralized in the hands of the speaker. Are there other periods of history where this voting behavior was common? What insight can history shed on the outcomes of treating our legislatures like it's a parliamentary democracy? Thanks. Uh, thanks, Andrew L. Much appreciated. It's a great question. I just don't think voters in most cases do this. Uh, in American elections, that we do have a lot of party-minded voting, and it's turnout of which base or the other that determines House elections, and also extreme computer-decided gerrymandering that determines House elections, and that's just a fact, uh, so that there isn't a real race in most races. Um, they can't gerrymander all of the um House races, but there's just enough uh, where that are swing elections. Um, so that for that reason, I think most people are either they're they're voting by party. They're often voting because of the president that they support and the policies that they support. And it's not so much a thinking of who's going to be speaker. Uh, I do believe that you had cases like in the 1980s where there was a very split ticket. And in fact, for a lot of American history, because Democrats had the Congress from the time of television to the time of the Internet, from 54 to 94, you had a Democratic Congress. You had a lot of this split voting during that time, but it wasn't always the case. I mean, the New Deal Congresses under Roosevelt were tremendously um, 
Democratic while he was a Democratic president. And then if you look at the last two Democratic presidents, Biden and um, Obama, you had both a Democratic House and Senate uh, with a Democratic president. Same thing happens with Clinton in his first two years. So really the last three Democratic presidents at least started with Democratic Congress. They just couldn't keep it. And in the case of Biden, he doesn't have everybody on board for everything he wants to do. And that's just simply the case. Um, I will uh, point out some specs of this idea. You have some Democratic conservatives in the 1980s, like Charlie Stenholm of Texas, who threatened to run against Tip O'Neill, the speaker, in order to show his voters that he was separate and independent. You weren't voting for Tip O'Neill when you voted for him. I'm going to go in there and run against him. You know, uh, And then Gene Taylor, a Democrat who later became a Republican anyway, in the early 2000s, he promised not to vote for Pelosi uh, if he was elected in 2010. And then uh, he lost anyway. And then he ran as a Republican in 2014. He was running in Mississippi as a Democrat, so it was very hard for him to deal with the speaker issue. But in most cases, I think that those are the only cases where the speaker comes up. They tried to do this in uh, 82 against Tip O'Neill. And in 1996 and 1998 against Newt Gingrich to transform these speakers into the opponent. And I guess it somewhat worked for Clinton in 96 and 98. Um, You know, when you get to the 19th century, a lot of the voting is on tickets, and you drop the ticket into the, the ballot box. So you're not having a lot of opportunity to split vote the way you can with the modern machines. And... You could, though, in most states, write out, cross out a name you didn't want to vote for, write someone in in some cases. But that's what you'd have to do, which made it more difficult. Um, I think your friend could be justified in this parliamentary voting. Like, no matter how nice the guy is, the speaker over time has been granted such power over the years as, for instance, the ability to recognize or not recognize legislation and move it forward. Plus, they get the majority of seats on the Rules Committee, and rules wrap around every piece of legislation, which means they control the Speaker, and the Speaker's influencers say control the House completely in a much greater degree than the majority leader controls the Senate. So they're kind of justified in a way. I just don't think most Americans are thinking about who is going to be Speaker. Thanks for listening. So this one's going back, but um, I didn't realize this. What we talked about on the Lincoln Train podcast at the beginning of 2021 about Lincoln's trip to the inaugural from Springfield. And I talked about all the different towns that he stopped in. And one of them, I said, Chile, New York. Well, it's not Chile, New York. It's Chai Lai, New York. And uh, if I had a dime for every time I pronounced town places wrong, it's very difficult, you know. I mean, I, I know that some of the places I'm familiar with in New Jersey, like Forked River, everyone would pronounce Forked 
river if they saw it. And if I ever saw it in another state, I'd probably say, oh, that's Forked River. But in New Jersey, it happens to be Forked River. We have another town that's in Spanish, which has rules of pronunciation, should be Buena, but it's pronounced Buna. It happens. So it is Chai Lai, New York, that Lincoln went to, passed through, and not Chile, New York, as I had said. Sorry about that. With that, it's a long one, but I'm glad I got some points out. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Thanks a lot.